This is episode number 154 with Cal Newport. Success 101 Podcast. Welcome to the Success 101 Podcast. This is your host, Jared Warren. At each episode, my goal is to bring you a new concept or idea to help you maximize your full potential. Thanks for joining me here today. Now let's kick things off. Welcome back, guys, to the Success 101 Podcast. As always, this is your host, Jared Warren, author, speaker, coach, and dedicated to making your future great. Today, we have Cal Newport on the show. And guys, I am super pumped about this episode. Today, we're going to be talking about why following your passion is actually bad advice, how to get into deep work, even with all of the noise going on in today's crazy, busy world, And who better to bring you this episode? Cal is the author of two of my favorite books, Deep Work and So Good They Can't Ignore You, and has really mastered this idea of counterculture thinking about your passions and eliminating distractions to get into deep work, which we could all use more of. And don't forget, some of you may have heard me say before that I'm taking the advice of a couple of mentors of mine who have encouraged me to connect more with all of you guys. I'm doing some one-on-one consulting, a free call, actually, with those who are interested. So if you want to gain incredible performance going forward this year and you think you might be a good fit for me to coach you, let me hear from you. You can go to info at success101podcast.com and let my team know that you're interested in the one-on-one consultation. Again, totally free to you. Or you can head over to success101podcast.com forward slash contact and fill out the form online. And the purpose of this call, guys, is for us to be able to connect to see if it makes sense for us to talk through a coaching relationship. The people that I'm coaching right now, I've had wonderful relationships with, and we've seen some huge gains in their performance over the year. And guys, that is my passion. That is what fires me up. And I cannot wait to see who takes the challenge and signs up for a one-on-one consulting call with me to see if it makes sense to talk through the next steps. Guys, this is going to be a super impactful episode today. And though I get excited about all of the podcasts I bring your way, anything dealing with deep work and counterculture thinking to the ways that we're working today so that we can all get better really excites me. So without any further delay, let's jump right to my conversation with Cal Newport. Cal Newport, what an honor it is to have you on the Success 101 podcast and a long time in the making, by the way. It is so good to have you here. How are things today? Uh, things are well, and, and I'm the one who's honored to be on your show. Well, I'm glad to have you. And we were talking a little bit offline about my demographics here of people that are in highly active roles, typically highly stressed roles. And if we can make them better, again, back to the whole Success 101 name, what is the grassroots level of, of how we become successful That's a lot of your work. And so I know we're going to dive into two of your wonderful works today. So good they can't ignore you and deep work and why maybe we have a lot of this stuff backwards. If we can start with just you giving me a brief example of where, you know, the motivation behind both of these books of anything you could have written in your field of study out there. Why these two books, So Good They Can't Ignore You and Deep Work, and what was really the motivation behind you helping other people understand why these two things are so crucial? Well, it might sound a little self-centered, but actually both of them tracked pretty closely to 
issues in my own life I cared about. And because I happen to also be an author, I had the sort of lucky advantage that if there's an issue in my life that I care about, I can go ahead and write a whole book on it. So I can, yeah. I can, I can really dive deep as it were. So, so basically, So Good They Can't Ignore You, which is essentially a career book, right? It tackles the right. question, how do people end up loving what they do? I started writing that because I had an important career transition happening in my own life. I was about to enter tenure track academia. If you do that right, it's going to be the first and last job interview you ever do. So I figured if there was any time I needed an answer to that question, that was the time that I should, I would get the most leverage out of it. Yeah. Fast forward, I I write that book. I I take a job at Georgetown. And now the question is, how do I do this job really well? Sure. You know, an elite level cognitive job, cognitively demanding job, what matters, what, what doesn't deep work really initiated in me looking at that question for myself and then finding that the answers that came up had much broader application than I first supposed. So let's camp out on that for just a second on the so good they can't ignore you before we dive into deep work here. There was a quote that I took away from your book that really you just kind of hit on there for a second. And you said, quote, my question was clear. How do people end up loving what they do? And I needed an answer. This book documents what I discovered in my search. So you were just saying that you needed an answer. And there it is. And I know you've got four rules that I want to dive into here and just really peel the layers back on the four rules in that book. Rule number one, don't follow your passion, which I'm sure gets a lot of eyebrows raised in uh, academia circles, especially of people who think maybe they know more than you or think that they could know more. Uh, You're a young guy from what I've been able to tell and coming out saying don't follow your passion, which goes against everything that we've been taught, probably get some eyebrows raised. Number two, be so good they can't ignore you or the importance of skill, really, is the way I would break that down. Rule number three, turn down a promotion. Again, another eyebrow raiser. And then rule number four, think small and act big, which is probably my favorite one. But can you dissect in your own way just those four rules and how we can really use those to leverage our success each day? Sure. Well, the first rule is the one that certainly raised the most eyebrows. and had a lot of fun going on the road and telling people, don't follow your passion. Right. You see the last thing they expect is to hear from someone who's up on stage to talk about how to love your work. But I think it beneath the contrarianism actually covers a very important point, which is if you study the advice that's out there for how to end up loving what you do for a living, you're going to hear the same thing again and again. Follow your passion, follow your passion, follow your passion. But if you then do just a little bit of further research, by which I mean either talking to real people who really do love what they do and saying, tell me your story, <laughs> or looking at the sort of voluminous research literature we have on workplace satisfaction and meeting, it becomes clear that that's really actually counterproductive advice. That's the foundation on which the rest of the book builds. And it's counterproductive really for two reasons. Uh, one, it assumes, in order for that advice to make sense, it assumes most people have a passion in advance right. that they can identify and then say, okay, let me use that to decide what I should do. The, the whole advice depends on that being true, right? You have to have it to follow. We don't have a lot of evidence that that's true. We don't have a lot of evidence that especially young people come pre-wired somehow to a clearly identified pre-existing passion that happens to be a good fit for whatever current jobs happen to be out there in the 21st century economy. Yeah, absolutely. And so right off the bat, if you tell someone, just follow your passion, that's what they hear. Follow your passion, follow your passion. And like Which is what we've heard all of our life, right? We've heard all of our life, though, actually not as long as you would suspect. I looked into it. Really, that phrase, you don't see that phrase show up in the in the context of career spaces till the late 1980s. Really? This is not- I would, I would just assume that would go back forever since it's, they've been writing on tablets and <laughs> whatever Yeah, exactly, right? That Aristotle was writing about it in the Nicodemian Ethics or something. No, <laughs> correct. It's recent. So for someone like me, I'm, I'm 34. 
which means I was sort of my formative school years when I was in grammar school, junior high, that would have been in the 90s and into the early 2000s. I was at college. That was the heyday of this advice. So to me, that's all I ever heard. But if you go back 10 more years, people weren't talking about it yet. You actually can't find a phrase showing up before around 1989, 1988 in the context of career advice. So it's not some timeless piece of advice. It's actually quite new. Man, that's so interesting. I've had people older. I'm 35. I've had people older than us on the podcast before, but just it never came up to where I had to ask, hey, you know, when did that phrase originate or did you hear that growing up as well? I just assumed, as most people do, likely that are tuning in listening to this, that that has been there forever. That's very interesting. Yeah. So that's the first problem with it is that a lot of people, and I would say probably most people at the sort of college, college graduation age, don't have clear pre existing passions. Two, for that advice to work, it depends on this assumption that if there's some topic you really like, and then you do a job related to that topic, that you'll really like the job. So there's this sort of clear underlying logic behind that advice, uh, advice that, hey, if you really like this topic, then if you're doing a job related to that topic, that enjoyment will transfer over to your day-to-day work. And again, Yeah, almost that A plus B equals C. Yeah, right. It seems like a natural syllogism. But again, we know that this is not true in a lot of cases. I mean, think about all the cliches of the, the passionate amateur baker or photographer, right? Who opens up the professional bakery or opens up the photography studio and is miserable. And yeah. What makes us- It, really it becomes like, work. It becomes, it becomes work. work. And then they, the passion dies off. Yeah. And so what makes us like work, the research literature is clear on this, is very different than what makes us like, say, a hobby or a topic or a type of media that we like to consume. And so there's just a lot of uh, naivete behind the idea that you can figure out in advance what you love and use that to make your career decisions. And that if you match your work to something you love in advance, then you'll love your work. It works for some people, but it, for most people, it's just going to create confusion and anxiety and job hopping. And I think what happens is, is that a lot of people later in life, after they have successfully developed passion, which the other rules will get into how to do that, when you ask them, what's your advice? They might say in a knee-jerk type of way, oh, follow your passion. But what they really mean is follow the goal of ending up passionate about your work. It's worth it. That's worth fighting for. Don't settle for, I just don't really like this that much. I'm just going to stick with it. But those are two different things. It, and I would bet most people are saying that after they've already reached a level where they're in, quote unquote, their passion. And so it's easy for them to say that. And if I'm hearing you correctly... What they're saying, though they believe it, isn't even really what they should be saying. Right. Or is even what they think they're saying. So I, oh, right. That's what I meant. That's yeah, what exactly. I, meant. I mean, that's my guess is that when most like very successful people say follow your passion, what they really mean is follow the goal of ending up passionate about what you do. But when you're 25, 26, 21 years old, you hear that advice as find a passion in advance. Use that pre-existing passion to make your career choices. If you do that right, you'll love your career from day one. And that particular strategy is, for most people, going to be a terribly counterproductive strategy if their goal is to end up loving what they do. Golly, that's so interesting. And I'm going to ask you almost an impossible question. You may have some data for it, maybe not. You're probably not the only guy with a brain that's wired toward this type of stuff. I mean, obviously, you've got the inside track because I just don't see a lot of information on it out there. Do you think, you know, in the health world, there's always things that are changing and people say, oh, this is not good anymore. It really should be this, that, the other, whatever. Do you think in a shorter amount of time or maybe in 10 or 20 years, we're going to see a lot more stuff coming out on things like this about passion to where you maybe had kind of the inside track on it? Or is there more stuff out there that maybe I'm just not tapped into that is already pointing toward this already? Because as far as I know, you're the first person I've ever heard say anything like that. You know, I think it's getting out there. And because there's other people more famous than me who have started mentioning this idea. So Mark Cuban, for example, 
has yeah. has famously talked about this on on multiple occasions. I don't like this follow your passion uh, advice. Uh, Mark Andreessen, you know the the famous venture capitalist and right, right. Netscape. He's come out real strong about this is bad advice. Mike Rowe from the show Dirty Jobs has come out on multiple occasions to say this is crazy. This idea that you have to love something in advance in order to get satisfaction out of your job because he spent the whole career you know, profiling people who had jobs that were no (laughs) one in their right mind would be wishing that was what they were going to do when they grow up. But these people are incredibly satisfied and and happy with their work. Yeah. And as you say that now about Mike Rowe, that does ring a bell. I have heard him say that before, but I think actually breaking it down, I don't know, maybe for lack of better words, just to a a rules format like you have here with the rules that I just read off or a science almost of how just to really understand it. I haven't heard anybody say that, but yeah, I do remember now that you say that Mike Rowe has mentioned some things and written some things about that, but not broken it down, in my opinion, the way you have in So Good They Can't Ignore You. So that's very interesting. Cal, what do you think people are really hearing in their minds? I'm trying to think of how to phrase this because I've got it in my mind here as I'm trying to say it. What do you think people are envisioning when they throw the word passion around? Because we mentioned a second ago that people that are telling you that it's okay to chase after your passions are usually people that have already found their route toward whatever it is they love they're doing, but it's not even really what they think it is as they're saying it. That phrase has become almost cliche. You know, I remember my wife several years ago in some of my writings, even she said, you throw around these words, passion. And, you know, she was just trying to hold me accountable. And she said, are you really passionate about everything that you say you're passionate about? And I'm like, well, yeah, I think I am. I mean, otherwise I wouldn't write it. She said, but you can't be passionate about that many things. And so she really exposed some truth to me. I think it's just getting thrown around a lot. What do you think most people are picturing in their mind as they say the word passion that is just giving us all this bad advice in today's time? Well, I think the problem is there's no one answer to it. Exactly the issue that you're pointing out there is this word has become a catch-all that has so many different meanings in so many different contexts to so many different people that to say, hey, you should follow your passion or assist your passion becomes almost meaningless. And I think that we'd be better off if we just said, here's the new rule. We're not allowed to use the word passion. So whenever we want to use it, we have to think up a different sort of more descriptive, clear (laughs) way to say what we're trying to say. I think actually we would find out that we're talking about different things in different contexts. And so I'm a big proponent of the word itself is so broadly defined right now that it's just no longer useful. So it's a great exercise. Try to have a conversation about your career and your career plans while forbidding yourself to use the word passion. Yeah, man, that's so good. And I know that on a lot of stuff that I've read out there, when you start talking about being passionate in your job or the things that really make you fulfilled in whatever you're doing, if we want to throw that word passion out, right, there's a few factors that are there. Some people talk about, they add a a couple of more in, but I think most people in the business world would say today that there's some sense of autonomy. You have control over what you're doing each day. There's some sense of competence that you're you're a little above the mark of what you need to be doing. And there's some control there each day on, on just some sense of confidence, right? And then there's also the relatedness, just feeling that connection that's out there. And I know what you're saying is, is that science doesn't necessarily tell us that we need to match a pre-existing passion to our work if we want to find actual happiness in our work. So is that, is that somehow, is that kind of a fourth thing that should be blended in there? Or you maybe say in those three things that I mentioned that most people refer back to in the business world, maybe we just need to blow that whole thing up completely in and of itself. Yeah, you don't find in the scientific literature, it's very, very difficult to find work on career satisfaction, meaning, or motivation that comes back to a match of the job to a pre-existing trait being important. It just doesn't come up. The things that matter are like the types of things you talked about. So the three you mentioned, autonomy, competence, and relatedness, those come from a a pretty robust theoretical framework called self-determination theory. It comes out of positive psychology, where in a lot of different contexts, 
having those three things make you very motivated and happy. In my research, a couple other things tended to come up. Uh, in addition to autonomy, a sense of mastery uh, and a sense of connection to people, often a sense of impact on the world. You know, I'm doing something that has an impact and also a sense of creativity that you're, you're creating something from scratch, something that a new configuration. You put those together and you get these five traits. These five traits make people really love their work. And none of those five traits, which come up all the time in the research literature, have anything to do with, did this job match some strong pre-existing preference I had before I took it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. But that's what we're taught. That's, that's what we're taught so many times. So yeah, I do think it, you know, will, I do think it will change over time, but I just remember when I first read your book and I'll be, I'll be honest, I didn't know your work. I didn't know anything about you. So much that's out there today is somebody just trying to either get in the spotlight or somebody trying to put a corner on something that maybe down the road will realize is, Hey, maybe that was just for attention, whatever you start hearing somebody say, pursue your passions and, you know, don't ask for promotions and those sort of things. And it's like, okay, okay, who's this guy? You know, right? And so whenever I first read your work, it came highly recommended to me. But at first I kind of had those feelings of, okay, I need to read further because this can't be right. And by the time I was done with it, I was like, holy cow, you know, I didn't even have a podcast going or whatever there. I would have tried to get you on immediately, but it's just so important. And, you know, your quote in the book that you use a lot where you say working right trumps finding the right work. It's just so true in all of this. What has been the biggest feedback? Maybe it's this, but what has been the biggest feedback from your readers that you've gotten that maybe was surprising to you, the amount, either the amount of it that came back in in such a strong way of people really appreciating the work or aha moments, or maybe there was new revelations that you didn't even know would come from this book that people gleam from it? Yeah, I would say that the strongest positive feedback was the sense of fatigue that people have with the, the follow your passion regime. They're, they're just tired of hearing, you're supposed to have a passion, you're supposed to have a passion, why don't you have a passion? And so that was probably the, the biggest positive feedback. On the negative side, the biggest pushback I got was there was a, a conjecture, which is a reasonable conjecture, but it turns out is, is actually a false conjecture that, wait a second, because my whole program is, you know, how do people end up loving their work? Well, it usually starts with them getting really good at something, Right. Right. Uh, and that's the second rule is be so good they can't ignore you is that typically as you build up rare and valuable skills, that becomes the foundation on which you then cultivate a sense of passion. So the passion comes later. The biggest piece of pushback I got was people said, but doesn't it, how am I going to persist? How am I going to persist in getting really good at something rare and valuable if I didn't start off really passionate about it? Where's my motivation going to come from to work really hard at something? And it turns out there's actually, I mean, the response to it, and I wish I'd, I'd written more about this in the book, I only touch on it in like a short half chapter, is that we know from the research literature that motivation and passion snowballs with skill. So as you get a little bit better at something, you get a little bit more motivated and satisfaction out of it. Then that pushes you on to do the hard work to get to the next level. And now your motivation and interest and meaning you're deriving is even bigger. And that gives you the, the energy you need to get to the next level of getting better. So it feeds on itself. And so you do not need de novo this massive reservoir of passion that's going to fuel you through your whole career process. That passion is something that's going to come along the way. It's the goal you're trying to get to, not the starting point. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting whenever I got into the book and read those rules that you just didn't title this whole thing, Don't Follow Your Passion. You actually titled it rule number two, which is be so good they can't ignore you. So, man, valuable, valuable advice, and I would recommend any listener out there, you guys who are my faithful listeners, know that I don't just throw things out flippantly. I vet stuff out very, very carefully, and I test everything. 
And this is one that, uh, you know, that's why I wanted to get Cal on is because I don't just fill spots on the podcast. This is super, super important stuff that if we're not careful, could really either we get bad advice or it just floats underneath the radar of, oh, that that's, makes sense. Well, I've been told that all my life. And so without exploring it more, you just continue to push forward. And then people have the fatigue that you're mentioning of you finally get out to some point and realizing, hey, this is not, you know, what I thought it was going to be. So if you don't mind, let's camp out on that rule number two for just a moment. It is the title of the book, Be So Good They Can't Ignore You, which really talks about, you know, the importance of skill there. Tell me why that was so important and why your research behind that led to all of the revelation that it did. When I study people who love what they do for a living, probably about eight out of 10 of them, followed more or less the same general strategy. And that's the strategy that I capture in that chapter. It's the strategy that I think is the right way for most people to end up building real meaning and satisfaction in their working life. And it's it's pretty straightforward. You can think about the strategy as a, a sort of an economic exchange. The type of things that make a job really great, the traits that really lead you to love your job, to find passion or meaning in it, are rare and valuable. You know, lots of people want them, only so many jobs have them. And so if you want those traits in your job, you have to have something rare and valuable to offer in exchange. The market doesn't care that you want a job that's going to give you great flexibility and autonomy, but also a real sense of mastery, and you're going to have huge impact on the world. They don't care that you want that. You have to have something to offer in exchange to get that. And almost always, that's rare and valuable skills you've built up. And so this is the basic exchange that I outline in that chapter is the way that most people end up loving their work is that they put their head down and get really good at things that people care about. And then that gives them massive leverage in their career and allows them to shape their career around the type of things that makes it meaningful to them and away from the type of things that that makes it a drag. So that's the equation. You become so good you can't be ignored. And then the, the follow through that quote, which actually comes from Steve Martin, if you do, then the good things come. Or in other words, if you want the things to make a great job great, you have to be great at something first. Putting your head down, getting good is almost always the first step towards a really good career. And I won't give anything away here that I read in the book, but I think if I'm a listener that is not familiar with your work and I hear a lot of the passion talk thrown around and basically all the comments that you just said about getting really good at your work, keeping your head down until you till you get there and you find it right, I think I'm going to listen to that and go, well, how? How does that work? Because if I'm not passionate, if I'm not motivated, if I'm not really geared up and energized to do something, I'm probably not going to get into much less, you know, much less the deep work, but also I'm not going to be able to be as good as I can be to where they can't ignore me because I'm truly just not pursuing my passions. How would you combat that to where our listeners can hear from you on that? You really have to lower the bar in terms of what qualifies something for you to go after. I think the problem is, is we've raised this bar so high to have this belief that if I'm not convinced that this is what, you know, I was put on this earth to do, how am I going to put any energy towards it? That bar is way too high. It's more than sufficient to say, okay, here's a job I find interesting with a path I find interesting, and I have evidence that if I do this really well, it'll lead to interesting things for me. There might be a dozen things in your life that might satisfy that criteria. Throw a dart to choose one, right? It doesn't really matter. Once you have something that's interesting to you and that will reward you getting better, that's enough to get started. That's enough to say, great, let me start down that journey. Let me start down that path. And you're going to find a snowball effect. There's a lot of satisfaction in just craft itself. You're going to find satisfaction in honing your craft and getting better. That's going to generate more motivation, which will help you get to the next level, which will generate more motivation, which will help you get to the next level, and it'll snowball on itself. So if people have one takeaway, it should be 
you need to really th lower this threshold when it comes time to choosing your job or what you want to get good at. You need to, to get away from this idea that there's this sort of one true thing you're meant to do and everything else is garbage for you. Because the reality is, is that there's hundreds and hundreds of things that you could build a very passionate career on top of. The choice is not what's so important. It's what you do after you make that choice that really matters. Huge, huge. And all of that stuff could get lost just underlying in the noise and the busyness and just so much, you know, my listeners know so much of this year has been about me trying to get back to more of a minimalism or minimalist state. I had Greg McEwen on the podcast recently. His book, Essentialism, spoke so much to me, as, as did your book, Deep Work, that we're about to dive into. Those two books were really pivotal in me trying to reach higher levels of max performance. If I'm going to really walk the walk and talk the talk and do everything that I'm trying to suggest for my listeners to do, I've got to be great on cutting things out of my life, cutting the noise out, but then also really really understanding what deep work is all about. And what you just described basically kind of lends me back to the one thing by Gary Keller and Jay Papasan, where they talk about the domino effect of just one domino compounding into another domino, bigger, 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 you know, the snowball effect, as you mentioned, those things are so key for us to key to hone in on and just make sure that we are doing excellent work at one thing that leads to another, leads to another, those compound effects that's great. Thanks so much for sharing that. I thought we would spend more time today on deep work, but this is too important to <laughs> to leave and get off of. So, but with that shift, because we only have so much time in a podcast, let's get into deep work. Uh, the title of the book is Deep Work Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. For those of you guys who haven't seen it, and I'd encourage you to go grab your copy like yesterday, but it's going to really set the tone for 2017 and help you guys get your maximum potential faster by just really understanding what's important. And you have four rules in this book as well that I took away from it. Rule number one, the work deeply rule. Rule number two, embrace boredom. Rule number three, quit social media. Rule number four, drain the shallows. I love that rule. That was probably one of my favorites. But one of the quotes in that book, you said two core abilities for thriving in the new economy. Number one, the ability to quickly master hard things. Number two, the ability to produce at an elite level in terms of both quality and speed. So the new currency out there, many people would say, is speed. Time is everything in today's maybe new economy, as you're referring to there. Tell us about the deep work hypothesis, that ability to perform in that state of deep work, really where that idea came from, why it's so important, even though it may be evident, and really how we're going to use that through your writings to become better this year. Deep work is an activity in which you are focusing intensely without distraction for a long period of time on a cognitively demanding task. So it's when you're giving something your sort of full mental energy without even a glance at a phone or an inbox. And my argument is that this is the mental state that best serves those two things you just mentioned that are key to thrive in the new economy. If you can get into a state of deep concentration, you can learn complicated things quickly, which you have to do if you're going to thrive in the new economy. If you can get right. into states of deep concentration, you can produce not only at a massive quantity, but at really massively high quality levels. You can produce at an elite level, which is also what you have to do if you're going to thrive in a new economy. So that leads to the deep worth hypothesis, which says this skill. And, and Cal, just before you jump into that, can you yeah. just, if somebody's scratching their head out there, maybe a little younger in the business world or haven't really tapped into this, tell them what your definition of the new economy is just briefly and what you're referring to in your writings. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, I'm focusing on the knowledge sector of the economy and the fact that it's getting both technologically more complex and more competitive, both in terms of just competition within the marketplace, but also competition from new technologies, automation, outsourcing. 
these things are all putting a lot of pressures on this economy that's making it very competitive and a little bit of a scary place to be because it's starting to shake out. There's going to be some winners and there's going to be some losers and not a lot in between. So economists sort of have this sense that if you're in the, the knowledge sector of the economy, this is a time to get your A game together because that sector of the economy right. is going to start shaking out the B players pretty soon because you know what? We could replace that with an algorithm and some outsourcing. Yeah, no, great, great job. Didn't mean to cut you off there, but I thought that was important to uh, camp out on. So tell us about the deep work hypothesis you were diving into there before I cut you off. So the first part of the hypothesis is the skill to, to the ability to concentrate real intensely for those reasons is becoming increasingly valuable. But the other part of the hypothesis is, hey, if we look around, I think we all can agree that for the most part, most people's ability to do deep work, to concentrate, is getting worse. So yeah, we have- absolutely. These are countervailing forces. We have a skill that's getting more valuable at exactly the same time it's getting worse. And my interest is not uh, railing at people for getting worse at this skill or for people being too distracted. I look at it the other way. I say, this is a great opportunity. You have a skill that's getting more valuable at the same time that, that is getting more rare. Hey, if you're one of the few people or one of the few organizations to systematically cultivate this ability, that's going to be a huge competitive advantage. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you talk a lot in your book about deep work, but then also go into the shallow work, which I think is where most of us camp out, sometimes not even realizing it. And each day we have the best of intentions. We show up. I talk a lot on my podcast about playing office. These advisors that I'm coaching here or any of my other business clients, you're busy, busy, busy working all day. You kind of just play office. You go home, you're fatigued, you're rubbing your eyes and you're sitting there thinking, what did I get accomplished? What did I really do today? Even though I know I was really busy doing a lot of things. And it's because most of the ch tasks that you felt good about accomplishing and knocking things off, you were kind of just getting into shallow work in most cases. Now we have a name for it because of your book, but go into the real emphasis behind deep work versus shallow work from a writer's perspective, from your research, and really where the pitfalls are there for us staying in shallow work too long. Yeah, this is one of those cases where vocabulary, just having that is 90% of the effort in increasing understanding because let's, you know, we, totally lay, down agree. The, we lay down the terms. So we've defined what deep work is. Let's just let shallow work be everything else. So if it's not deep work, it's shallow work. Uh, shallow work's not bad. It's not a pejorative. It's just non-deep work. Once you recognize that these are two different efforts, it forces you to think in terms of not just, I worked a lot today. You have to think in terms of, I did this much shallow work and this much deep work today. And when you actually make that division, a lot of people aren't happy with the results to come back. Because an increasing number of people basically spend all of their time doing shallow work. Because remember, even if you're doing something that you think is deep work, you're, you're trying to do something hard. If you're glancing, doing what I call just checks every 10 minutes on a phone, on a tab, that doesn't count as deep work. You're not getting anywhere near the benefits of true unbroken uh, deep work. So actually, most people do more or less zero hours of deep work. Yeah, right. Day. And so once you recognize that, that there's, these are two different things, you, you're no longer just satisfied being busy. What you really care about is how much deep work did I get done? And the way I like to think about it is uh, shallow work is like what keeps you from getting fired and deep work is what gets you promoted. Or if you run your own, and if you run a business, because I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs, it's like shallow work maybe will keep you from going bankrupt next week, but it's you know deep work that's going to triple your revenue. Deep work is what moves the needle in the knowledge economy. When you're not using your, when you use your brain at its full capacity, that's what moves the needle. You get better at things, you produce things that are valuable. Shallow work does not move the needle. It's very replicatable. No one ever made a fortune being really good at answering emails. So quick question here, put you on the hot seat. Do you have a smartphone? You mentioned the glancing at the smartphone throughout the day. Do you have one? 
I have a smartphone, yeah, but I, I've never had a social media account, so that that phone doesn't have too much. It doesn't have. <laughs> I too did much read that about you. <laughs> uh, I forgot. I, I read somewhere that you haven't set up a Facebook or Twitter account. And I was like, ah, that can't be. You know, the guy's out trying to promote. You know, you're an author like anybody else. You're trying to promote that work and that awareness, which I think you should. You need to get more attention and awareness around this. So I thought maybe that's not true. Maybe by now he has set up one. Yeah, no, I haven't, and I'll tell you what. I still have friends. I uh, I still know what's going on in the world, and I still seem to sell books. So I, I know there's a lot of storylines out there that if you're not using every one of these things all the time, that somehow you're going to disappear. But I'm a little bit more confident that a lot of these industries and a lot of these fields have been around for a long time, a lot longer than Facebook or Twitter has been around. And I, I don't yet buy the premise that they've lost all of their other channels for how they find out about interesting things and spread the word. So yeah, that's uh, exactly right. I, and I would say in the new economy, we were just discussing the new economy here. I would say there might be some people, and I'm sure you'd know better than anybody. You've probably gotten some pushback on that, I'm guessing, of people saying, hey, if we're going to really work and perform as entrepreneurs in the new economy, we have to be tied to these things. We have to promote. We have to market. We have to get our name out there, our brand, those sort of things. How do you combat that when it comes to just what you just described as saying, hey, I'm, I, ha- I don't have those things and I still sell books. I still you know, all those sort of things. What would you say to the entrepreneur out there who's in a little bit of a different role than you, but still trying to accomplish some of the same things? Yeah. I mean, I often go back to the original Steve Martin advice that was the the quote for my you know book two books ago, which is when people asked him, what is your advice? How do I get noticed in the entertainment industry? How do I, how do I break out? What's the secret? He said, the advice I give them is never what they want to hear. They want to hear about, okay, here's the secret to getting an agent or to getting noticed. But what I tell them is be so good, they can't ignore you. If you do that, the good things will come. It's a little bit glib, but it is more or less true. It, 99% of the battle in almost any business or any field or any profession is do really good stuff. You do really good stuff. Hey, there's people out there that'll spread the word. There's people on social media to spread the word. You can certainly, if you run a business, hire someone to do some of that on your behalf. But this notion that everyone needs to be looking at a screen every five minutes and that that somehow is a core activity in economic success, I don't quite buy. I still think the core activity in economic success is producing that thing that people really want and you're really good at producing. (laughs) Everything else is like the 2% margin and it should not be something that's taken up as much time. The average American now spends over an hour on the Facebook suite of apps. They can spend up to three hours on average per day on various social media related services. I don't know how much promotion people think they need to be doing out there, but I have a feeling if you took two hours and 55 minutes of that and put it towards working really hard at producing something better, you'd probably end up in a better position. Oh, that's so good. And I'll play a little bit of the pessimist here just to, you know, as we get ready to wrap up the podcast, because I think there's going to be plenty of people that are wondering this. Two very crucial things you said in this book. You said, don't take breaks from distraction. Instead, take breaks from focus. And then along those lines, you said, I propose an alternative to the internet Sabbath. We hear people talking about that all the time. Instead of scheduling the occasional break from distraction so you can focus, you should instead schedule the occasional break from focus to give in to distraction. And just as you mentioned a few minutes ago in the other book, people who are pursuing their passions over and over and over and getting to this dead end, they reach this burnout spot, this fatigue of of pursuing that. I would think that a pessimist or someone who's not open to this idea, a little closed off, would come back and say, well, Cal, you know, what you're saying there kind of sounds good, but if we only take breaks from focus and we're trying to stay in that focused mindset all the time, especially as entrepreneurs who, you know, go out and create their own schedule each day or or maybe even an employee that has somebody just laying big files on their desk saying, I need this done by a certain time, work through it, get it done. Won't they fatigue? Won't they wear down? Won't they burn themselves out from just always being in that focus mode 
except for the times they take these little breaks from focus. What would you say to that? Yeah, if that's what you were actually trying to do, you you would definitely burn out. And so so what I mean when I say take bro- breaks from uh, focus for distraction in life more generally is I'm talking about, when I say distraction, a very specific category of activities, which is basically any time you spend interacting with something where someone has spent more than $100 million to keep your attention on it, treat that with some skepticism and concern. So if you look at most of the social media services, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars are being invested to make these things as sticky and addictive as possible. Same thing for a lot of websites. Uh, same thing for television, right? The the shows are made to be watchable. You want to binge watch it. Binge watch it. So what I'm saying sure. for, for those type of activities, structure when you do it. Don't have it just be the default that throughout your whole day as you do other things, you're constantly going to be dipping in and out of these things because too much money has been put into making these things attention catching and it's going to fragment to your attention and prevent you from doing real deep work. And so you don't have to quit all these things. You don't have to say, I never watch TV or never use Facebook, but maybe just say, I don't do them on my phone. And I'll tell you when I do them, I do them from seven to eight o'clock at night and I do it during my lunch break that you take a break from a life that doesn't have these things pulling at your attention to occasionally spend a little bit of time with them. So you don't lose any of the benefits they offer you. You don't lose any of the, the services or connections or whatever it is that you get out of the services. You're not losing access to any of that. All you're giving up is the ability of that special class of tools to claw at your attention persistently throughout the yeah. day. So I don't like this idea that take Saturday to not use Facebook. What I, I would prefer people do is say take 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. to not use Facebook and then <laughs> right. take an hour and go nuts and have fun. And then, you know, you can have a beer and look at all the different, you know, I don't do social media, but, you know, baseball trade rumors or whatever it is, whatever, you're, right, right. You're, whatever you're, you're poisoning. So I just put those particular activities that are engineered to be distracting. I say, treat them like you would treat junk food. You don't have to never eat junk food, but don't eat it all the time. You say, hey, it's Friday night. I'm going to have some pizza. Not I bring pizza with me in my pocket. And every time I get a little bit hungry, I take a bite. You know, I think about those things in the same way. You don't have to get rid of them. But people should probably have a little bit more care into how they let them into their life. Yeah. And that leads to very actionable steps and, you know, things that people can really get on board with. But I think what people, if we if we don't cover it, you know, more people out there cover it like you're doing. Uh, you could just have an entire society of people that are not in the know and they're a little bit ignorant to all of this attention residue, as you mentioned it. And I think for most people, myself included, and I'm I'm getting better at this with the more you know testing that I do in my own life, but you justify it. You tell yourself that looking at this ping or looking at this ding or checking your social media just when you go to the restroom and then, oh, I'll come right back and get into deep work. It doesn't work that way. Talk about the attention residue, why that is so crucial, probably a, probably maybe even more important than anything we've talked about here today, maybe, of just helping us to get in deep work and why that attention residue is just so sabotaging to where we're really trying to go each day. It's an incredibly important concept for our modern world that almost no one is talking about at this moment. And what it is, is a very simple theory that I think everyone has experience with. It should sound very familiar, which is imagine you're trying to do something hard, like you're writing something. You have the blank page in front of you. You're writing something. You're trying to go deep and concentrate on it. And you take a quick glance at an email inbox or a Twitter feed or a news feed. And then you immediately try to bring your attention back to the hard thing you're doing. Almost everyone has this experience of you've just lost 50% of your concentration there. Your mind is thinking about that thing you just saw. It wants to go back and compose the email that you need to respond to your boss that you just saw in there, or there's an article you saw in your feed that you really want to go read. This is attention residue. That quick switches of your attention from your primary target to a secondary target and then bringing it back again leaves behind a cognitive residue that can take a long time to clear. And until it clears, 
you are operating at reduced cognitive capacity. And so that's why I say for a period of time to count as true deep work, there can be zero just checks during the time. And it's not just to be sort of uh, masochistic, like, hey, I just, I, I went through without ever glancing at my inbox, so I, I sort of get a medal for that. The reason why I'm so firm on that is that if you're doing those just checks, the quality of what you're producing is going to be drastically reduced, and I don't think it any longer qualifies as deep work. Truly uninterrupted work with no attention residue is an order of magnitude more productive and valuable than the same activity, but with attention residue uh, slathered on thick. Yeah, and I want to be really clear here with my listeners. This is not just an idea or a thought. I mean, there are actually, you know, with the fMRI brain scans and the neurological stuff that some of the doctors out there I know now that they have the ability to do where they can actually see pain and pleasure light up on your brain. They can see in some ways in different descriptors, this attention residue where people do these checks, just checks as you're calling them. And it's just a ping, a ding, you do a couple of those within an hour and you're like, hey, I probably should win a medal. I was in pretty much deep work the whole time. But you can go back and see, and I'd love for you to share it, Cal, if you have any data on this as far as the amount of time that that hangs on your brain. I know that at one point, uh, it may have been your writing, I'm not sure, but at one point I saw that you know when you read the news, a lot of that negative news stuff stays on your brain up to six hours after the fact. Even when you've long stopped thinking about it, it's still there, and your brain will refer back to it at times subconsciously. What is the data on some of the attention residue that you found out there on just checking the pings and dings, like on your mobile device, for example, that seems so harmless? Yeah, you can get the really severe impact can last for maybe 10 to 20 minutes. And now what the thing is seems to matter. But the bad news is are the types of things you look at during just checks in a professional context happen to be the type of things that are the worst case scenario for attention residue. Because some of the worst things you can possibly glance at from an attention residue uh, perspective is something that gives you a social obligation that you can't handle at the time. So seeing an inbox and an email or Slack notification that, that you need to respond to, but you don't really have time to do it now, so you're going to go back to what you're doing, that's like a five-alarm fire for the human brain. The human <laughs> brain, because right. we are wired to be very, very, very careful about social interactions and social groups and our social standing. And so nothing gets our brain more upset than maybe, I, I can only think of, the only thing I think would be worse than that would maybe be if you just glanced out the window and saw a lion was charging towards your house. But it's kind of the same thing from the brain's point of view, is that you see those messages like, ah, uh, you know, I got to answer those at some point soon, but I can't do it now. That's the worst case scenario from a residue perspective. And probably the second worst case scenario is to be exposed to something that's very timely and interesting that you want to know more about. And so that's what your Facebook feed or Twitter is going to do to you. So the just checks we do are kind of the worst case scenario. You can get 10, 20 minutes easy where it's like you're you're fighting with one cognitive arm tied behind your back. And I think it's tough, too, because, you know, in some ways we're wired and created where we get little shots of dopamine each time that happens going through our email inbox when we know we shouldn't be checking emails. That's a that was a tough lesson for me to learn last year and how much time I was spending in my inbox. How tempted was I to go back and check it after my staff basically handcuffed me and told me, you better not get back in your inbox why am I so tempted to go back in there? It's because I get those little hits of dopamine as I'm checking things off and just those just those distracted you know, feelings. And it is interesting how people young and old, just how fickle we are as human beings, very smart, wise, educated people sometimes and have very, very tough time, deep work and just staying disciplined to doing that. I've always found that's fascinating as I'm participating in it myself, you know, those bad habits. So it's very, very interesting. And I certainly appreciate your work. As we wrap up the last topic here, I'd love to know, and I know my listeners probably want to know, 
you're not on social media. You mentioned you've got a smartphone, but you you don't have the the social media accounts and things like that on there. Are you using any sort of apps, timers, time blocking, organizational systems? What is it that keeps Cal Newport? I know you're human, right? You probably have your times too, where you slack off or you get off of these off track of these things. What is it that's helping you throughout the day stay more organized or in touch with this to where you know you could just be left to getting off track if you left it up to yourself? Uh, yeah, I'll tell you exactly how I manage uh, deep work in my life right now. Uh, the first thing I do is I lock the time for deep work off on my calendar in advance, like a meeting or appointment, and I treat it like a meeting or appointment. So if someone tries to schedule something during a time I already have put aside for uh, deep work, I treat it like if someone tried to schedule something during a doctor's appointment. Like, I'm sorry, I'm busy then, but here's when I'm available. People understand the social obligations of meetings and appointments. What I do a little bit differently, though, is that I actually go up to four weeks out when doing that planning. I want my deep work scheduled up to four weeks in advance because I found if I don't go that far out, too much stuff gets on my calendar, scattered just enough on the calendar that there's no longer any long unbroken chunks left for me to do the stuff that actually pays the bills. So I start by blocking my deep work up to a month out in advance on my calendar. Uh, when I get to an actual week, I always build a weekly plan for that week. I usually just type it up in a plain text file so that I have plenty of uh, flexibility and formatting where I actually talk about here's what I'm doing this week. Here's what's happening on Monday and Tuesday. Keep this in mind. Here's the general rules, a plan for the whole week. And then when I get to each day, I look at that weekly plan. I, I look at my calendar and I actually block out my hours on an old fashioned notebook. Here's what I'm doing this hour. Here's what I'm doing for these three hours. I plan out the day on that, that notebook, which I bring, which I bring with me. And then I execute. Where am I? What am I supposed to be doing now? I try to eliminate from my life ever sitting there in the middle of the day and asking, hey, what should I do next? That's awesome. I had Lee Cockrell of uh, Disney, executive vice president of Disney in charge of 40-something thousand people and for years ran a ton of their theme parks and hotels and things like that. And one of the biggest things that he talks about in his time-blocking seminar is you've got to keep a paper planner and you've got to have a phone. And those are used for very different things. But you have to have both of them in today's time if you're going to stay organized. And he wasn't talking about needing a phone for social media either, <laughs> but his was more about the importance of the yeah. paper planner along with the phone. And really, in most cases, you can just ditch the phone other than you might need it to do business, right? You might need it to advance your business, but that is so great. Thanks so much, Cal Newport, for coming on. I know you're uh, you're pretty hard to land and hard to get to. You've got some good filters out there. And uh, uh, I'd reached out to you when I was up in DC the other day and I thought, you know what, this is a shot in the dark, but I'm going to try it. And our good friend, uh, Anders Erickson hooked us up. And so I really appreciate him reaching out. But uh, where can we steer more traffic your way? If you're not in the world of social media, uh, I know you've got a website out there. Where else might people be able to go or is the website kind of the best place? Yeah, I'm sort of uh, old school if you can count an activity common seven years ago, <laughs> old school. But I have a, a blog, calnewport.com, and I write about all this stuff on there. And you can find out about me and the books or just dive into my thoughts on all these issues everything about right i will link all of that up in show notes and man you're just doing so much great work out there and really on the like you know like i said i hate to use cliche phrase but cutting edge of all of this because i'm just not hearing a lot of people talk about it in the way that you are even though more people might as you said might be talking about it out there so thanks so much for your work we look forward to your continued success and really really appreciate your time on the success 101 podcast today well thank you i really enjoyed it take care kyle bye-bye Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed having Cal Newport on the podcast as much as I did. 
If you would like to connect directly with me, the best way to do that is by email, and that is info at success101podcast.com, where my team and I filter through all of the emails that come through, so rest assured you will get a response. If you would like to connect with me in the world of social media, the best way to do that is on Instagram under the name at success101podcast or on the Success 101 Podcast Facebook page, also under the same name. I hope you guys go out and have an incredible rest of the year as you learn how not to pursue your passions and as you learn to get into more fulfilling episodes of deep work to crush your goals in 2017. I'll catch you guys on the next episode of the Success 101 Podcast. Until then... <laughs>